Real Talk. I'm Andrew Dansker, your host. I'm here with David Lloyd, managing principal and co-founder of Davion Holdings. David, thank you for taking the time to be here today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to chat with you. You've got a lot of big stuff going on. You've come out of the gate roaring, uh, launched your firm. Is it, is it two years or three years? Uh, two and change. Two and change. You launched the firm two years ago. You've already put together a tremendous amount of holdings. You, you closed on a fantastic deal last week that I want to talk about. And um, I think that you're one of the most active participants in the market at the moment. And you're, you're doing an incredible job. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, a nice intro. <laughs> it's the truth. You know, the intro wrote itself. So uh, that's the nice part. Uh, I'm curious to know, just at the 30,000 foot level to start off with, what are you seeing in the market right now? What's going on? The market's very spotty. Uh, that's, that's the best way to, to describe it. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of negativity out there on multiple levels. Uh, but from an investment standpoint, you know, we're not seeing a tremendous amount of deals, but we're seeing some very good ones. So uh, you just got to pick and choose your spots, but there's certainly a lot of opportunity if you know where to look. So you talked about uh, a lot of negativity out there, but it sounds like you're very positive. Why is all this market negativity a positive? Uh, what's going on that you, where you see opportunity? Yeah, listen, negative sentiment from an investor perspective, that's a positive thing. I mean, looking at deals when the entire market is looking at deals, you know, I actually had somebody in my office a few months back say, hey, stock market's crashing, the sky's falling, you know, is this, is this, time, to, is this time to go on vacation? Should we just take, take a couple months off? And I, I mean, it was, it was a meatball down the, the, the plate for me. I mean, that is, that is the exact opposite of, of how I'm thinking. Really, this is this is the time for us to to get aggressive. I mean, we are we're looking at deals that are 40, 50 percent off from where they were just a, just a few years ago. So we're we certainly look at this negativity as a way to or we're looking at the negativity as a, as a benefit, as a benefit to, to us that we're using to our advantage. Talking about deals being 40 or 50% off is, is a tremendous statement. Can you, are you comfortable elaborating a little bit on what you're seeing in terms of the deals you're looking at and, and the deals you're buying in terms of dollars per square foot, cap rate, other attributes in comparison to what they were, say, six months ago and, and what's going on out there in hard numbers? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, listen, the, you, you can look at things from a few different ways, a few different metrics, obviously, of cap rate, price per foot, price per unit, et cetera. But just running you through a deal we closed last week uh, down in, in Greenwich Village, it was a 22 and a quarter million dollar deal. And when I was a broker previously, I had sold next door in 2015. And this is on McDougal Street, prime location. I had sold next door for 1600 a foot. And this was for a half and half free market building with step up retail, obviously a very solid location. But that was the time in the market where if it was just on McDougal Street, you had 10 plus written offers and a bidding war. We closed last week on an asset that's primarily vacant and free market for $570 a foot. So wow. that's just, I mean, that's just a big drop off from where things were trading. And obviously there's a, there's a lot of upside for what we're doing, but it's a, it's a big drop off. 
Is that number, so just to clarify, that's about a third. So that's, I mean, that's an even bigger drop than you were saying. Are there attributes of the current, of the recent purchase that distinguish it from the comp that indicate that it's really a 40 or 50% drop in that market? Or is it really a 65% drop? Listen, I think it's really a, a 65% drop. I mean, the uh, the other building, I'd been in it, you know, several times and, you know, you know it's inferior as step-up retail. The building wasn't in fantastic shape. I mean, listen, it was, it was bought for the location. For our deal, uh, we do have more vacancy, but the buildings are in great shape and we have at-grade retail. It's actually blocked through retail on McDougal and Mineta, but we really, we got the price because we were buying when nobody else was. I, I think people fell asleep at the wheel. We had, we had been on this, this property when they were asking north of 44 million and it's been, it was a long road. It was an estate sale. And we stayed incredibly patient and we did what we needed to do and we can go into it a little bit, but uh, we essentially had a one day close that enabled us to get a, a terrific price. One day close. You heard it one day. That's amazing. So it sounds like being a younger shop and a newer organization, you're able to have a level of nimbleness that got you a significant discount here because I can't imagine a lot of institutional players coming in, fronting the money for due diligence and coming in and closing in one day. Yeah, we're incredibly nimble. And, you know, you know, my background and, uh, you know, uh, as well as my partner, Sean Lefkowitz, you know, we were, we were in the brokerage game for a long time, specifically in the multifamily space and mixed use space. And so we, we've seen hundreds of transactions through the hoop and really know how to execute. We had to do a lot of due diligence in a short amount of time. Uh, but, in, you know, we also knew how to get things done with the seller. But yeah, we we're lucky we have a, you know, a number of great investors behind us who like-minded, who are seeing value in the market today. And we were able to identify this opportunity. And when we had the chance to move quickly, I mean, we moved, we moved very quickly. So you, you talked about yourself and your investors seeing value in the market today, specifically about these buildings. I think the, the dollars per square foot sounds attractive enough to start with, but what makes these buildings attractive to you? Why purchase these assets? Sure. So you listen, obviously basis is great and the basis, you know, isn't the same in every market uh, and mainly due to regulation. So we use basis, we use basis as a guidepost and that's, that's a very important thing. Of course, everybody likes buying cheap bricks, but if you have cheap bricks where you can't, you know, you can't realize that upside over time, that becomes very expensive to hold on to those cheap bricks from an opportunity cost perspective. So I think what's different in today's market and why things have started to look so good in our models is we're able to buy at such a low basis. You know, obviously in that case, uh, you know, 50 plus percent below what they were trading for just a few years ago, but there's cash flow potential now. And we've always been focused on cash flow. I think that that's, you know, we don't really look at deals that don't have cash flow or cash flow potential. So in this case, we're, you know, we're able to, you know, get the low basis, but we're building it to a, a very meaningful cap rate that you never would have thought. I mean, when I was in uh, the brokerage business, we sold a portfolio down in the village for a one cap, right? And here we're, we're building to north of a six on very, very conservative COVID numbers, you know, factoring in some, some significant drops on both the retail and residential portions. So I think the cash flow is the biggest difference that we're seeing as well. So if, if you were to sum up your investment philosophy at the moment in this particular environment, it sounds like you're harping on two specific criteria that are the basis of your philosophy. One is upside and two is current cash flow or quasi current cash flow. Is that right? So listen, any deal that we're spending a lot of time on, 
we, we think there's home run potential. I think that that's, you know, we're looking at deals that have a lot of upside, but that those aren't necessarily all the deals that we do. You're saying to sum up our philosophy, I mean, everything's risk adjusted. So we spend hours, you know, Sean and I spend hours going back and forth, focusing on the downside of the deal. And most people don't realize that and don't think that way. So people think we're buying in a risky time. We actually, we disagree. There are risks in the market, but there are also ways to mitigate those risks. So we think if you're able to mitigate the risks in this market, and we can go into that a little bit as, as terms of what those risks are. I mean, we, we really get granular and we're, we're laser focused on managing those risks. And obviously if, if we're able to do that successfully, we're buying an incredibly low pricing. We think these deals are going to work out. I mean, I think that's really interesting and really smart to focus on that risk. I think sometimes in a good market, people focus on the upside and forget about the risk factors, which are always there, right? And it's a crisis that brings those risks into the forefront of people's minds. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that the, the value level has changed as dramatically as the pricing? And I mean that to say that I recognize that the market is reflective of value to some extent, right? But market is also reflective of where the sellers are and where the market, you know, is in this exact moment. Do you, do you think that, let's say post-crisis, that's still a 575-foot building? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that, you know, if you want to, there's a few different ways to look at it and, and value comes in all shapes and sizes, right? You can look at the value of the income stream and with regulation, uh, I think that, Cash flow, as I said before, has come to the forefront of these conversations. You know, cash flow was never used in the same sentence as New York City, and now it is. And you know, we've we've looked at uh, markets all over the country, and and you know, we've chosen to stay in New York because we're able to buy with cash flow in New York City, which was primarily a, a market that was used for appreciation. But you know, in terms of a cash flow stream, you know, you look at where the tenure is. You look at you know, it's it's less than a percent. Um, and you can compare it to historical spreads, right? So it's not just on the bricks. You know, obviously we're buying the bricks, you know, 60% lower than what they were a few years ago. But look at the historical cap rate spreads over the 10-year. And right now we're, we're at a historical spread. I mean, it didn't happen too many times in history where we've gotten this wide. I mean, it happened, I believe, in the early 80s. And some, it's even wider than it was during the Lehman crisis. So we think that the spread is there also in terms of value for cash flow when comparing it to other investment classes and just New York City and the, and the risk of that cash flow stream in general. I want to change track for a second because you mentioned the word regulation briefly, and I don't want to go too far down this road. However, I'm curious to know what you think the four-year limited look back uh, new case law has done to values and how that impacts values, if you think it does. I think that that case that came down, which limited the look back on rent-stabilized units to four years came down right before this crisis and, and really received a very limited amount of attention in the press for obvious reasons. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how that impacted value and if it really changed things or not? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's a big thing what happened and it, you know, there's just so many important things that are going on in the world that are dominating the headlines and rightfully so, but this is something in the multifamily space. Anybody who's been in the multifamily space for a while understands how important that ruling was the Regina ruling. And uh, I, it's un it's unknown. And, you know, I don't waste too much time trying to figure out what's going to happen in terms of values and predicting, but I think that it will certainly impact velocity. Uh, when I 
got into the business. Uh, it was only a four-year look back. You know, obviously in the past five or so years that had been extended and really people were looking back as far uh, as they needed to and, you know, felt exposed considering the laws used to be you didn't even need to keep that paperwork. But the bottom line is doing the diligence for buying a building just got infinitely easier and more quantifiable. And at the end of the day, you know, less due diligence and more quantifiable due diligence is going to result in more transactions, in my opinion. So values remains to be seen, but some good news out there for brokers that there should be more velocity, more deals should get done. So uh, you, you sort of touched there on an interesting point, which is the position of sellers in the marketplace and keeping paperwork and, you know, how you sort of navigate that process, even if you, maybe some of them didn't even intend to ever be sellers, but 20 years later they are. You've seen hundreds of transactions. You've been in the business over a decade and you've had the privileged position of being in the middle of many transactions. So you've, you've had a privileged view. I'm curious to know from the vantage point that you've had, what would you say is the biggest mistake that sellers of real estate make that hurts their, their own ability to maximize the value of their real estate? Yeah. I mean, you hit, hit the nail on the head. It's, it's paperwork. I mean, that's uh, people who keep good records and uh, sellers who keep good records. It's a much cleaner deal. It's, you know, going back to the previous point, it's easier to do diligence and it's easier to quantify your downside and quantify those scenarios. If somebody came after you and, and landlords, you know, going into a deal, uh, owners going into a deal, they're hiring L&T counsel, third, you know, third party third parties to look at this type of stuff. And, you know, they're coming back to them with a the number. Hey, this is what your exposure is. And that's, uh, that's incredibly important. So if you don't keep your paperwork, you don't realize how much you're negatively impacting your real estate. And that's just, I think there's regulation everywhere. But for New York, it's, it's right up there in terms of priorities for a seller. What about the flip side of the transaction while we're on the subject? Uh, you've gone from being an intermediary to a buyer. But, you know, you've done so with, with 10 years of watching buyers do a good job, do a bad job, et cetera. What is the biggest mistake that buyers make that hurts their ability to get a good deal? It's another good question. Um, I think the average buyer is very passive. They're not proactive enough. They're very reactive to the deal. And, you know, we, we definitely learned that on the brokerage side, that skill set that's, that's stuck with us. Uh, and this McDougal deal that we closed on last week is the exact, you know, in a nutshell, how we, you know, applied those, those skill sets. But this is a deal that had been out there for 40 plus million for almost a year. And, you know, people, you know, fell asleep at the, at the wheel. Obviously, you know, since we've closed, we've got a, and a lot of people asking, you know, how do we, how do we get that price? How do we pull it off? But really it was just consistent, proactive behavior in terms of staying in front of the seller and doing everything we said we're going to do and checking up on the deal. And when, when there was a window during the Corona storm, uh, they really wanted to sell. They needed close by year end. And we were able to come in with a solution when a lot of people were forgot that the deal existed or didn't stay on it. So I would say the biggest mistake that buyers make is not being proactive enough. Is that something that you think is your most important skill set that you learn from being a broker and watching these transactions for a decade that has translated directly into your role, new role as a buyer and owner? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a, listen, we have a few things I think to distinguish us and, you know, have allowed us to succeed, you know, in this, in this time frame and ramp up quickly. But I, 
I definitely think that that's, yeah, it's one of them. It's, it's definitely part of our special sauce. We, we've seen so many deals get done. We really, we, we know how to make it happen. And really, we know how to solve problems. And that's a, that's a huge skill set just in life and business. You know, we go into each day with the same mindset. We know we're going to have obstacles. We know there's going to be things that are going to be tough to figure out, but we just really have a strong mindset and are able to, to overcome and, uh, you know, get to the finish line. So let me ask you this question. You're going to be approaching 20 properties under ownership very shortly. Is that about right? Yep. Yeah. Even through this crisis, you're averaging something like a deal a month in acquisitions since starting day one of opening the shop. That probably ranks you as one of the more active buyers in New York City. And I don't think that many people can compare not just into the in the deal volume you're doing, but also the prices you're getting. How when when you decided to jump into the principal side, how did you ramp up so quickly? How did you turn that skill set from being an intermediary to all the other things that you need to be able to do to buy, manage, uh, raise money, you know, do all the other things that need to happen in order to get deals done the way you're getting them done? Yeah. Um, listen, the, the jump was a big one, you know, but we had seen, we saw the writing on the wall in 2015. The market was just too hot. Things were trading, you know, well off, you know, what we felt was, was their intrinsic value and bidding wars, you know, one caps, people were not buying for cash flow, forgot about cash flow. And, and for us, you know, we, we thought that this was too hot, you know, following the next couple of years, the market started to decline and New York's really been in a five plus year decline on the multifamily side because of the political you know, regulations and, and everything that's, that's come into effect on that side. Uh, so when we made the jump, you know, everything, of course, it, it's a, it was a big jump mentally, but it, it, for us, it boils down to the mindset. And, and um, you know, we've been able to, you know, listen, everything we do, we want to be the best. Uh, I think that that's something also that we, you know, we hang our hat on. So in terms of finding the contractors or getting into the models or, uh, you know, executing our business plans, putting together, raising capital, you know, the marketing, everything we did, we approached with that same growth mindset. And, you know, that that's allowed us to be successful and ramping up so quickly. You know, you don't realize you look back and, you know, we've, we've come a long way in two years, but, you know, in our minds, you know, we're just, we're just kind of getting started here. And, you know, every week, every day is, is new challenges and new opportunities for us. I want to shift, you know, instead of looking back to also look forwards for a second, we know where we've been. Where are we going? What does the future of the real estate business look like in New York City? Yeah, I mean, no one, no one knows for sure. Uh, you obviously can look at the trends. You know, for me, I look at cycles. And I think we're nearing different points in the cycle where things have almost reached their limit in terms of negativity. So things will cycle back. No one knows when. and can't put a time on it. Anybody who says doesn't know. So we don't, we don't spend too much energy trying to figure out when that's exactly going to happen. We focus more on value and we focus on, you know, what we're seeing in the market, but things are going to be just now that I've said that, I think things are, you know, things could remain negative in terms of, uh, you know, obviously everything going on with the global pandemic. And obviously there's some, a lot of political, you know, the country, I, I can't remember a time where it's been more divided. So I, I think there's just going to be a lot of negativity that is still in the market. And, you know, real estate is not a mark to market situation. I mean, it doesn't change overnight. It's slow moving. And, you know, because of that, it's going to take time for this to play out. But I think fundamentally speaking, more investors are figuring out that you need cash flow. And so the more the political environment tightens up and 
you know, things move further left and there's, you know, things are heavily, more heavily regulated, people are going to put more emphasis on present cash flow. So I think things may shift from more of a basis market, a price per foot market where people just buy a cheap price per foot and close their eyes. I think that now you got to really be looking at, hey, when, you know, how are my dollars working for me and, and what's going to be my return on my investment? Because if you have no cash flow for five years and you put that against a similar building uh, that's earning 10% cash on cash at a slightly higher basis, you know, it's, it's very difficult for that other one to catch up over time. Right. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about neg- negative sentiment in the marketplace taking a while to work through, I think that what you're really revealing, and, and as well as when combined with your statement about seeing a, a peak in the market in 2015 when you were a broker and starting to prepare your launch into the ownership side, I think that what you're evidencing is a very classic strategy in the stock market, right? Which is buying dollar cost averaging your way through the bottom of the V. You start buying uh, as the V goes down because nobody really knows where the bottom is. You buy all the way through the bottom of the V, you buy all the way back halfway up the other side. And um, by the time you're done dollar cost averaging a portfolio through that process, you're in at an incredible basis. And if you've done so with cash flow and you're not risking negative carry during that period, you've got a beautiful thing put together. I think it's important to distinguish that we're not trying to time a bottom. I think people who try and time bottoms, it's not a, it's not a very logical way of looking at things. You know, obviously anybody who's read an investment book understands that it's basically impossible to time a bottom. But I think that, you know, we know when it's generally good and generally bad out and it is very bad out right now. It is, is bad out there in terms of negativity, in terms of people leaving New York and saying, oh, is New York done? Are things never going to be good again? And listen, this is one of the most resilient markets in the world. And, you know, when we started in the business, we started after Lehman crashed and we saw how negative it was. You literally couldn't give a building away. You couldn't give a building away in a prime location. And you, we saw a bottom form and then everybody jumps on and, and things move in cycles. Things move in cycles for for you know, 10,000 plus years and they're gonna to continue to move in cycles. So we, we look at it and say, we may not time the very exact bottom or maybe we did, but it's not important. What's important is you know, we're, where we're buying it, what returns we think we can hit from a risk adjusted perspective and the value that we're getting. So we're, we're much more focused on that and timing the exact bottom. So do you think that all these factors that you're describing and the sentiment in the marketplace are leading to or have already led to a change in who the players are, both in terms of individuals, names, but also in terms of types? I mean, are we shifting from uh, certain business models to other business models uh, in terms of the size and type of buyers and owners in New York? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think if you, if Ot Heavy in 2014, 2015, you know, that was a, a very comfortable time to buy because everybody wanted to buy real estate. Everybody knew somebody who was in a New York deal and it, everything felt really good. People didn't realize that that was probably the riskiest time to buy because there was infinite ways for, for the market to go wrong. So now we're sitting here in a different scenario where it's nothing seems to be going right and everything feels, it feels like the, you know, nothing, it couldn't get much worse. And we're getting closer to that point. I think people are now going to come in and demand more. And I think that, you know, being able to close, being able to execute your business plan and for sellers to trust that you can close, that's going to carry more weight because we're at that point in the cycle where people are just literally looking for a buyer. So that, you know, we're, we're excited by that. Clearly, you know, there's not many times in New York city where, Hey, you offer one day close and you get a special price because there's just so much attention, so many eyeballs on a deal. And 
you know, so much competition. So right now we're not seeing a lot of competition, but we expect once people start seeing some of the deals and we're under contract on, you know, five more properties. And we think that once people start seeing these types of properties, you know, and what they're trading at on both the basis and cash flow potential perspective, people are going to start jumping back in. Well, you've clearly earned your stripes in terms of proving yourself as a, an able buyer, which I think is probably why you have so many deals lined up, right? Is that in a market like this, people want certainty and they want, you know, proof of concept and, you know, having a couple years where you're an active person closing, you know, I'm, I'm sure you even have sellers who would speak up to other sellers and recommend you as a buyer just because of the speed and, and ability with which you're closing, which gives you a tremendous advantage. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny. One of the, uh, one of the main reasons we were able to win the McDougal deals, we had the sellers speak to some of our previous sellers who we've transacted with, you know, we knew that there were other buyers at the table, but we thought that this was a, this was a competitive advantage for us because we've had such positive experiences. Really, when we say we're going to do something, we do it. And that carries weight. This is a small business. And for the seller, uh, and it was an estate sale, you know, for them to be able to speak to a seller that we bought two buildings from last year for a combined price similar to what we were paying for this, it helped put them at ease and it helped get us in a track to win, win the opportunity. But yeah. It's pretty incredible. And it's interesting to see how directly your experience as a broker and watching all those transactions and seeing the pitfalls really has translated into being able to run your business so efficiently right from the beginning and avoid those problems. I'm curious to know on a totally different topic, you're originally from Massachusetts, which is a tremendous point of pride. I went to boarding school in Massachusetts, beautiful state for any New Yorkers that uh, have not ventured north of the Harlem River. Wait, where did you go again, Andrew? Where'd you go? I went to school in a really tiny school out in Western Massachusetts in a town called Great Barrington in the Berkshires. My graduating class had nine people in it, so it's not a very well-known institution, but uh, it was beautiful out there. And uh, Massachusetts has a special place in my heart. So I'm curious to know, with that perspective, you've clearly chosen to invest in New York multifamily. You could choose to be anywhere. Uh, is there anywhere else you would consider investing right now? Yes. I mean, listen, we, we've looked all over. We know New York and that's, that's our specialty, but we have looked in other markets. I would love to buy in Boston. We've looked at a number of deals in Boston. We've looked at a number of deals in Philly, other, other markets, you know, further out West. And yes, we would hundred percent buy and we wanted to buy in other markets, especially as things work themselves out right after the, uh, the rent regulations, you know, shifted at the end of the day, we're getting paid. We're getting paid to stay in New York right now. We are seeing cap rates meaningfully higher where traditionally there was a, a risk premium. If you wanted to go buy in a, you know, a, a different market that wasn't New York City or San Francisco, you were getting a, a higher cap rate. You're, you're getting paid for that extra risk you were taking by not being in a top market. And now it's, it's almost inversed. Um, so we're getting paid to be in New York we're long-term bulls. We, th- we think for sure there's going to be some short-term turbulence, but that's expected if, if you're going to be buying in a down market. Uh, every down market, you know, in the moment, and it seems like it seems like the sky's falling. It seems like this the city can't figure it out, and it has, and it always has. So we our bet is that, you know, things will regress to the mean. It's just, you know, you can't put a, a timing on that. It could be one year, it could be two years, but we're not we're not buying to flip it in one year. So for us, we'll continue to buy in New York if there's value, let alone relative value, you know, looking at other markets. But yeah, some of these other markets, such as Boston, you know, we couldn't find anything 
Whereas we can buy in downtown Manhattan, right? Steps from NYU, uh, institutions that have been there for a very long time. And it, we, we think that there's just tremendous value in New York City right now. It's funny. One of the things my father said to me was that uh, as a, a buyer in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, one of the things that he dramatically underestimated was the value of proximity to an institution that generates a constant flow of traffic and uh, NYU being a great example. It's interesting that you just said the same thing because in a down market in New York City, he said the exact same thing to me in retrospect though. For sure. Listen, NYU is not going anywhere. Um, you know, all signs point to them being open in the fall in some capacity, but they're not going anywhere. And we love that type of foot traffic, especially during COVID, post-COVID. The younger professional and student foot traffic, we think, is going to perform better than tourism-based foot traffic for obvious reasons. So that's, that's something that attracted us to this deal not just from you know the retail perspective there and the retail is a small portion of the building but you know for the 72 apartments upstairs you know we think that's a durable durable demand that you know in the face of of the of the storm that we're in is is going to perform relatively much much stronger well david i i really appreciate you taking the time to tell me about this deal in particular but also more more generally your thoughts about the market broadly and the real estate business in general. It's been a pleasure. I learned a lot. I hope the people listening learned a lot and I appreciate the time. Thank you. Really appreciate it and all the best. Thanks, Tender. Thanks for listening. That's all for today. 